If you're like me, you may have a case of email apnea where you stop taking restful breaths whenever you open up a work email. Or maybe your phone shines blue light in your eyes long after sunset. Many of us are doing all kinds of things throughout the day that put us in a constant state of fight or flight arousal with long-term impacts on health, productivity, and happiness. My guest for today's episode is Sarah Mednick, author of The Power of the Downstate, a book that taught me a lot about the art of relaxation, why it's so important, the best ways to go about getting more of it, and the time of day that our bodies are naturally suited to enjoy it. As a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of California, Irvine, Mednick has a wealth of scientific background on this topic. After getting her PhD at Harvard, she filled her sleep lab with seven bedrooms, and this is where she is federally funded to study people sleeping around the clock, with her research published in top journals such as Nature Neuroscience and the Proceedings from the National Academy of Science. She received the Office Naval Research Young Investigator Award in 2015, and her previous book, Take a Nap, Change Your Life, was based on her groundbreaking research on the benefits of napping. In our conversation, we talk about how work and society make it really challenging to get stimulation like food and exercise in the ways that are actually suited to our circadian rhythms and how our bodies generally work. And there are also many obstacles to just pressing the pause button on a daily basis to recharge in the way that our ancestors got to do for 99% of human history. Sarah shares some fascinating ways to get around these obstacles, as well as her insights about the importance of exposure to daylight and measuring your heart rate variability and nature versus nurture when it comes to whether you're a night owl or an early bird. And we talk about how things could change socially and culturally with work and our lifestyles to make it easier to live how nature intended us to live. I'm Matt Fuchs. This is the Making Sense of Science podcast. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for, for joining the, the podcast. Can't wait to talk about your book, The Power of the Downstate. This was a fascinating read, and I've been incorporating your recommendations into my routine. Oh, great. It's a, a real challenge, but an important one, trying to get both the upstates and downstates that are critical to our physical and mental health, even while living in a modern world that very often prevents us from having the right ratio of bursts of activity to periods of rest. So let's start there with my crude definition of the terms, since we are going to be using these terms in our conversation. Can you briefly define what you mean in your book by upstates and downstates? Yeah. So I'll start with the downstate. It's, um, I put it together. It's, it's a word that I, that I developed that really incorporates all of the restorative processes that we can engage in on a regular basis both during daytime and nighttime, to keep our um, resources high, to keep ourselves rested, restored, and to get us back to our good energy levels. Um, and the, the term upstate and downstate comes from the idea that we are rhythmic animals, that, that, we, that we have, and a rhythm gives you two sides. It gives you the upstate, which is the time where you have all the energy and resources to go out and be active and go be do, that, that type of um, energy. But all of that upstating is very resource depleting. And so the next part of the rhythm is the downstate where you can restore all of those resources and get you ready for the next upstate. And then basically life is just a series of upstates and downstates, upstates and downstates. Um, so there's many different ways in which our bodies and our minds and our emotions um, need to have time to process what it just experienced. Um, and not be in a active mode to do that, as well as time to replenish all the resources that were used up in the previous upstate. Right. And um, as I said before, there are a number of great recommendations in your book for helping people strike a better balance between upstates and downstates. And I encourage everyone to read it because it's Really helpful, uh, but also a very engaging read. I thought you did a good job presenting the information in an entertaining way. Thanks. Good. Uh, but for our listeners, are, are there two or three especially practical, easy to adopt recommendations from your book that you want to flag at the top of our conversation 
um, for people? Yeah, I mean, so the book is really divided into four parts. There's the autonomic nervous system, which is sort of the root of your communication between your body and your mind. Um, and so there's a there's a bunch of recommendations for that system. And then there's a system of sleep and circadian rhythm. And there's a lot of recommendations there too. And then there's a system of um, exercise. And that is also, you know, how do you use exercise to um, uh, to manage your upstates and downstates? And eating is similar in terms of exercise, in terms of it's how you can really um, manage your upstates and downstates by either having high caloric intake or low caloric intake, um, and what kinds of caloric intake are are the most healthy. Uh, so for all of those, there's a bunch of different recommendations. But if I was going to sort of set aside um, a couple, I would say that the first thing you want to think about is your breathing, because breathing is the root of your autonomic nervous system. It's the root of the balance between the two branches of the autonomic nervous system, which in scientific terms we call the sympathetic fight or flight and the parasympathetic rest and digest. But in my book, I call it the rev system because it revs you up and it gets you super excited and it expends all your energy um, and gets your resources moving around your body so you can act at the drop of a hat. Um, and then the restore system is the one that brings you back down to a healthy level and helps you restore all those processes. So rev and restore. So all of that is guided by your breath. Um, and your breath helps you either, you know, get a lot of oxygen to your muscles by breathing super fast, or it calms you down and it gives you a sense of safety and calm by having a slower breath. So the first thing is really to think about breathing and um, to bring on that slow, deep breathing, which is around six breaths a minute. So five breaths on the inhale, five breaths on the exhale. And that's something you can engage in at any time of day doing whatever you want, you know, when you're driving or cooking or in a talk or, you know, working, opening your email, um, all these things are moments where you can get super stressed um, and you can get into a panicky breath and you can send the message that you're not doing well. Yeah, I love the the recommendation related to to breath in your in your book. And I that is is one that I have been practicing uh, <laughs> since I read it in your book and it's related to heart rate variability, right? It can have a beneficial effect on HRV. And that's another topic that you discuss in some depth in your book and, and why it's so important to health. And um, so it'd be interesting if we could talk about heart rate variability um, specifically, but I wanted to follow up on while you're bringing up breath. So the, the this idea of sort of breathing in for five seconds and then breathing out for five seconds is really interesting to me. And I do find it to be very calming. And I'm kind of interested in asking about the specifics there with, um, is that something that people could even just get in the habit of doing throughout the day, like nonstop? Or is there any uh, way in which doing this too much would be a problem or could people just do it continue sort of continuously uh, have this meditative almost experience throughout the day? Yeah, there's really no problems with um, having a slow, deep breath throughout the day, because what that is, is telling your body is that there is, you know, that you do not need to be stressed, right? That you do not need to react to the world. You know, there's there's so many ways in which the world stops us from breathing and sends us into a panic mode. There's something called email apnea, where you open up your email and you just stop breathing, which is the worst thing possible, right? So, um, and, and when you get into any kind of stressful mode, you immediately engage in mouth breathing that's super shallow and you, you know, and, and that's a sense of giving yourself a message that you're not okay, that you're panicky. But, you know, these people who are really superstars in terms of stress, those are the ones who, when they are even in the most, you know, high stress situations where even potentially, um, you know, climbing a crazy cliff or being in a war zone or being in any kind of a situation where there's, 
you know, an emergency room and you're a doctor or a nurse, right? Those are the people who remain calm under stress. And they are, you know, they, they're resilient to stress because, and what they do is either naturally or because they've learned, they engage in this slow, deep breathing because it, it tells their system, like, there's, you know, there's nothing wrong here. This is just an issue to deal with and I'm going to deal with it and I'm going to walk down and do this. Right. And I suppose that the goal would be to do this enough throughout the day or through, you know, times when you're not stressed so that it's just sort of a habit and you don't even think about it. Like you don't have to consciously tell yourself to do it. It's just it's almost just that's the way that you naturally breathe is with these longer inhales and exhales. Is is that right? Is that kind of the goal? That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's definitely, you know, the HRV biofeedback training is basically doing this kind of breathing um, through an app that senses um, how your respiration and your heart rate are synchronizing. And I can, and that's what HRV is. And I can tell you more about that just in a kind of a simple way um, to get people an idea of what that means. But what those, the studies that are being done by a woman named Mara Mather at USC are showing that when people engage in this deep, slow breathing in a super intentional way for like half an hour every day, they actually show stronger white matter tracks in the prefrontal cortex, and they have a lot of different cognitive benefits as well. So it really does um, help in a very global way because that frontal cortex is the one that is is helping you with self-regulation, is helping you control your emotions, is helping you with your executive function, like your attention and you know your ability to focus on things and your ability to remember things. So there's a really... Um, strong connection between relaxing the body and strengthening the mind. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, it's uh, I'm, I'm pleased that there's a term for email apnea because <laughs> I, I definitely have that. Like, I didn't know that that was a, uh, a thing that's being studied, but I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad that uh, scientists are observing this. And uh, I, I definitely have that. And I, as soon as you said it, uh, I could remember, you know, the experience of email apnea. Uh, so that probably happens more often than not when I get an email that it sort of arrests my breath and I'm kind of get into this aroused state that it's uh, maybe interfering with the, the rest that would be uh, better, more beneficial to me cognitively. Um, but there's some different philosophies around this, right? Like I've seen elsewhere that longer exhales than inhales can be good. And um, I think that in your book, you recommend doing the exhale with mouth closed. And I, 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 know, I believe I've seen some other sort of meditative recommendations that say inhale with the mouth closed, but exhale with the mouth open. Uh, what do you what do you think? Are there competing schools or do you think that there's um, the mouth closed exhale is better? So this is a really ancient practice of breathing. Pranayama has been around for centuries and it's the practice, you know, that has many different um, applications and different techniques. The, the, the most um, there, I would even say that, you know, that once you start to get into it, you realize, oh, my God, I could breathe through one nostril and I could breathe through another nostril. And that's going to have different effects on my brain. I can, you know, do these very fast inhales and exhales. That's going to have a different effect on my brain. I can breathe through my nose or my mouth. And that's also going to have a different effect. So so it really depends on, you know, what is the the goal um, and uh, and then you know, do you want, do you need to get the Ferrari version of breathing or are you fine with like a Toyota, right? So, so that's sort of, I think that the the basic breathing, I recommend through the nose all the time because the nose is a, you know, there's this great book called Breath by James Nestor um, that was very influential for me um, when I was writing my book. Um, and it really showed how this is a lost art and that we've sort of lost the, 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 power of this filtered, warm, slow, uh, moist air coming into our noses that is a slower breath and slows down our breathing. Um, you know, when you breathe through your mouth, it's 
that that feeling of breathing through your mouth when you wake up in the morning and your mouth is all dry and 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 your throat hurts that is not a natural healthy way of breathing um and the most you know that that we've been getting into the a culture of mouth breathing and that's actually made our entire nasal cavity and upper cleft collapse which is why there's so many more cases of sleep apnea and breathing problems um so uh you know and, and and you know back in the day there was a we had a much larger facial uh cranial area to breathe through and that was a more natural slower breath <clears throat> so th- so you know the idea of, of doing the slow deep breathing has many different health uh benefits um and then once you start to get into it then you can start looking up all these different ways you know checking into a yoga class where there's breathing exercises or looking up online where there's so many different videos that can explain you know what the benefits of different ones are or you can go to um a different kind of meditation place where they where they have lots of different breathing exercises as well well, talking about breathing is definitely helping me. I, I, I'm very conscious of it right now. I'm doing the, the inhales for five seconds, the exhales for five seconds. Uh, uh, hopefully not uh, breathing too much into my microphone. I was <laughs> <So laughs> no, trying fine. to do it away from the microphone. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a challenge to remember it uh, throughout the day. Uh, but there are sort of technologies that, as I think that you mentioned, that can help us with tracking our success with with how we're doing and, and tracking our heart rate variability too, which we've referred to a couple of times. So, uh, why is you know why why is HRV so important, and what are some ways that we can measure HRV and and also you know our success with with breathing from a, a technology side? Yeah. So, so as I said, we are really rhythmic beings and and we have these very large universal rhythms of sort of day and night and you know the seasons of winter and spring and fall and summer and you know all these different large our lifespan is kind of you know it has, has a cycle to it as well but we also have rhythms to all of the little subsystems in our bodies such as our respiration has a rhythm of you know inhales and exhales our heart rate has um, a rhythm where it speeds up and it slows down and speeds up and it slows down. Our metabolism has rhythms. Um, you know, our, our brain actually has rhythms where it functions at its best during certain hours of the day. And then it starts to uh, really um, go into downstate mode later in the, in the evening. So the idea, one of the benefits of rhythms is it gives you these upstates and downstates where you can have these concerted times to replenish. But the other benefit is that it allows for something called resonance, which is that if you if you align your rhythms together, say of your respiration and your heart rate, what you find is that alignment means that your upstates happen at the same time and the downstates happen at the same time of these two different systems. What you find is resonance, which is a term from physics, and it means that the systems get stronger, their output gets stronger. So our respiration um, and also our heart rate is regulated by our restore, the parasympathetic restore system. Um, and at, usually what happens is when we're in our day-to-day, our breathing is actually quite rapid and we're breathing like 10 to 15 breaths a minute. Um, if you look at uh, the heart rate, which is speeding up and slowing down, speeding up and slowing down, that speeding up and slowing down rhythm is actually much slower than that than that fast breathing rate. Um, and so when you start to slow your breath down intentionally, what you're doing is you're bringing your breathing, respiration in alignment, you're syncing up your breathing and your heart rate so that when you're taking your deep, slow inhale through the nose, your heart rate is increasing um, heartbeats, which is means it's gobbling up more of the oxygen in your lungs. And then when the oxygen is depleted in the lungs, the heart rate slows down because there's less you know, there's less reason for it to pump because it's, you know, it's not getting any more oxygen. So you actually create this super efficient system. And that is, 
you know, and, and, and also you have these systems resonate with each other where you have this really big restore response. And that's what heart rate variability is, is really to bring your heart rate and your respiration aligned with each other to slow the breathing down so that it aligns with the heart rate and have these really big restore response. And, and, and that's all of these different apps are what they're doing is they're measuring how you're breathing and your heart rate, and they're seeing how, whether you can create more alignment with them through giving visual feedback um, to say, okay, you're doing great here, um, and now you're sort of falling away from it, right? And that's that biofeedback that tells you, am I reaching that sweet spot or not? So with increased, you know, with apps, you can do this kind of training of yourself to get into that sweet spot. Hmm. And I assume this involves like a pulsometer of, of some type? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, usually it's on the finger and you can just kind of create um, what you what you find is you create a, um, uh, a visual image of how your heart rate and your, your breathing are aligned. And then uh, once you start to get into, you know, that right breathing space, you see this really big increase in heart rate or you see whatever visual feedback. There's many different types of, some are like video games where <clears throat> there's one where it's like a sea, seabed and the more you get into this really nice zone of breathing, the seabed starts to populate with a lot of different sea life. And that's really fun for hmm. kids to do. Yeah, I'm definitely going to look into that. Um, also interested and, and very intrigued in your descriptions of the best time of day for the upstates and when to concentrate your upstate activity. And maybe this dovetails with your the concept of resonance with, you know, having these different um, all these different types of upstates coinciding in this window of time when our bodies are naturally best suited to it. And I think that you described something along the lines of 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. as being uh, the, the window to shoot for, for um, maybe like, you know, maximum upstates. And then the, uh, the rest of the time is sort of gradually going in more into to downstates and then, of course, sleep. So this, I think, leads into the chronotype discussion. I really enjoyed the discussion in your book about chronotypes uh, or a, a person's natural inclination to sleep at a certain time, wake up at a certain time, like people who go to sleep late might be called owls, whereas people in bed right after the sun goes down might be called early birds. How much of the modern human's chronotype is cultural or environmental as opposed to something that's actually going on in our bodies biologically? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and we don't really know. Um, there's a lot of uh, there's there's a lot of variability in terms of, you know, are, are people naturally night people, right? Do, and, and what do we mean by that? That means, do they have a, you know, how do we measure that? Well, there's many different ways, but they're kind of, there's no litmus test to say you're a night person. But what you could say is, when does your melatonin onset begin? Um, and melatonin is this hormone that regulates your activity cycle and your sleep cycle. And basically it means once the melatonin um, naturally begins, that could, uh, that, that's an indicator for when you're naturally going to get sleepy. So in some cases where you, with their studies where they look at people that have this delayed sleep phase where they're really falling asleep much, much later than other people, only half of them actually have um, delayed melatonin, which means that the other half um, of people are, you know, are don't necessarily have a biological drive to stay up late, but that they really like to stay up late, or that they, you know, push themselves to stay up late, um, and so that means that what, there's probably a lot of there's there's probably some amount of nature, and there's some amount of nurture that is driving these different preferences for early morning versus nighttime. And then there's also evidence that looks at more primitive cultures that have no exposure to electrical light. And in those cases, you really don't see a lot of chronotype differences. Um, people go to sleep in a pretty similar time. And it's only when these people move to 
um, more industrial areas where there is control of your day and night via electrical light. Um, and in those cases, that's when you start to see um, chronotypes emerge as well as sleep disorders and problems, you know, and stress and all sorts of other things. So, so um, I think that it's, it's a very difficult kind of, you know, to really discern whether this is a nature nurture argument. I think we're not there yet. It seems like based on what you just said, it'd be really important to self-assess whether you are a person who has the delayed melatonin, right? Is, is there an easy way to do that, to figure out if you are actually like a biologically uh, driven <laughs> uh, owl? I mean, there are definitely these take-home melatonin measurements. Um, I think, uh, what is the company... Um, Tor or Tom or whatever that is, um, Thorpe or I, for, I forgot what it is, but it's something th something or other with an O. Um, anyway, they they do take home melatonin. The question is, is really you know what is what is the benefit of um, figuring this out? Because uh, in some cases, maybe you would feel like, okay, I really am this, so I should really. I really am a night person, so I should adapt my whole um, daytime, nighttime routine to really emphasize and enhance my upstate to be later in the day and my downstate to be later in the night. Um, the other, but you know, there, there is also this idea that that people in general have a very hard time making wise decisions about their um, bedtimes. Um, at night for several reasons. One is that the upstate um, of our prefrontal cortex, that sort of that, you know, the, the parental decider in our brain that says it's time for bed um, or it's time for, you know, doing smart things, um, that system is waning at night. You know, that, that, that when you are getting sleep deprived, your prefrontal cortex is shut down. So at the end of the day, it's not thinking very well. It's also at a time where we have the freedom to start to look at all the social media, right? That we have and or watch all the different Netflix that has the this the episodes that just start again. So it's almost impossible to turn it off at, you know, before it starts another one. And then you're like, OK, I'll just watch that one again. Right. That so I'll stay up another hour. So I think that we have a sort of diabolically difficult time getting to bed early, even if um, we naturally should be getting to bed early because of this kind of, you know, perfect storm of poor prefrontal cortex functioning and high level of addictive um, uh, stimulants all around us during that time. So we can't say no. Um, so... I guess to me, the thing is like, you know, if we were in an environment where, say, you take yourself camping um, and you're away from all of those different stimulants and all of those different light controls, would you be able to get to bed, you know, at, say, 9 p.m. or 10 p.m.? If the answer is yes, and for many people it actually is, um, then you're probably sleep depriving yourself and you're probably, you know, that idea of you being a night person may be self-imposed. Uh, why is the goal 9 or 10 p.m. if the sun is setting like around, say, I don't know, 6.30 in the fall? Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't if you really wanted to align your circadian rhythm with what's going on in the environment, wouldn't you go to sleep at like seven o'clock? Um, I think that there's a lot to be done that is uh, that <clears throat> is still very downstatey um, that isn't just sleep you know that 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 there's time to really be connecting with the people that you love and have intimacy and to you know take care of things that are home environmental um, things that that you know taking care of your life and doing meditation and doing uh you know having a good meal and having a good conversation all those things go on it's it's checking in with the cave mates right so you don't need to like and and all of downstate isn't just sleep right so that there's a lot of really good connections and downstate activity that can be enhanced when you're um in the evening period 
of that kind of, you know, no blue light and bathed in sort of orangey red light of candlelight. And, you know, that, 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 that's actually a really good feel good time as well. So it's, it's not just, okay, nighttime starts. I need to get to sleep. Nighttime starts. I need to go into downstate mode. And that can mean many different things. Looking across the world, are there any examples of modern societies that are doing it right when it comes to having healthy upstate, downstate culture, lifestyle? And what, is, what would such a culture look like? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting question because, you know, what do we have? To, is there something where we have to sort of give up uh, uh, from our modern culture to obtain that natural state and and there are cultures obviously the old order amish you know the pennsylvania dutch the people who are who eschew any kind of electricity and they you know they have everything by candlelight um and and they work really hard and you know they work very hard during the day and they eat super healthy and they go to sleep you know, early at night because they're up in the morning and they have a very strong community sense. And, um, you know, in a way, you know, if you look at that kind of culture, there's something incredibly, um, um, there's something very natural about that as a human culture. Um, And it's very, you know, they're not connected to the internet at night. They're not seeing blue screens at night. They are, you know, they are dealing with nature on a regular basis, right? So they're very in touch with their natural world. Um, you know, all of that is incredibly healthy um, and incredibly important. Um, it's also very isolated and different. So is, so is there a culture uh, that is potentially sort of living more in um, the natural world? I mean, probably. You know, I, 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 I'm not sure. I think that at this point, every um, modern Western or industrial culture is some is somewhat overly connected to screens and s- sedentary behavior. And um, so, I, you know, I'm not sure beyond beyond cultures that are very uh really eschewing electricity. I'm not sure what I would point to because I think it's it's kind of a a, a, a plague of 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 industrials industrialized cultures in general. Yeah, and I think that it seems like work is part of it, right? I guess that I'm thinking of the way that our nightlife entertainment is, you know, when I, going to restaurants for dinner and what time we do that and going to music concerts and sporting events, all of that is happening at night, partly because we're working during the day, right? At least on the weekdays. So maybe there's some reorientation in addition to the, the screens at night, which are, you know, uh, piping blue light into our brains uh, exactly the wrong time. We're also, we've got this uh, commitment of our daylight hours to being at work when we're not socializing. And so if we want to socialize outside of work, there really isn't any other time to do it except for nighttime. And then the, a lot of those activities are focused on bright lights, you know, these stimuli that at least I associate with upstates. Um, I don't know. It seems like we've got a lot of work to do to rejigger our calendars and our schedules to suit what's naturally good for us. I mean, it's an important problem to solve. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, you know, I think that during the pandemic, people stopped doing a lot of things like that. And I think that a lot of people kind of really got into it <laughs> you know, of, of being of, of deciding on their schedules and deciding on when they would wake up and when they, you know, people started getting back into napping and eating the way they wanted, exercising the way they wanted, going to bed when they wanted. Um, and there is I, I do feel that there's this kind of draw to not lose that. Um, we are now getting very quickly back to a pretty stressful life. And I think um, there's a lot of worries, you know, in the world right now. There's a lot of political problems and there's a lot of um, environmental problems. So that there's a, I think that people are in general very stressed out. Um, and uh, the more that we can honor 
these downstates to support us both during the day and also by really honoring our night times as these sacred times where we can turn inward. I think that those are going to be very important going forward. And do you see employers being part of the solution uh, going forward and in accommodating employees downstates? There are these meditation pods that I've been reading about where employers are actually like um, providing spaces and time for employees to um, relax and meditate during the workday. Yeah, I mean, I think that they need to go a lot, a lot farther. At this point, I think that, um, you know, it's really up to like... Everything I recommend in the book is free and available. Um, it's, it's obviously, you know, there's the question of access that, you know, are there parks in all neighborhoods? No. Are there, um, is there, is it safe in all neighborhoods to go for a run? No. Is there clean water in all neighborhoods? No. Um, you know, is, do people have access to healthy food and good grocery stores? No. So the basic aspects of downstate life are completely, um, there's inequality across, there's inequity across all these different areas. So I think, um, it is, it's like you can, you can say, well, everybody should be able to downstate. That's a human right. And we should all have that. It, all, it is now on government agencies and on, I believe, employers of these big companies to be incentivizing um, people to do more exercise, you know, to eat better, to stay at a healthy weight, to keep hypertension away, to keep diabetes away, to stay, you know, in all these different downstate behaviors that they could be supporting during the day, but also incentivizing good health markers, you know, via insurance payments and all, you know, whatever it is that, that, that employers can be helping with, because it's going to help them too, right? It's going to help, you know, it's going to help with retention. It's going to help with um, keeping their insurance costs low because people are going to have less chronic disease, right? So, so I think it's not just on the individual, it's on are, you know, the community leaders and it's on government agencies to make sure that there's healthy access across the board to all these different downstate behaviors. And then also employers that really want to engage in their employees' um, health benefits. Yeah, that's a, those, those are really important points about some of the societal barriers um, that government can help to uh, you know, overcome it, it also seems, and, and then the role that employers can play, I agree, they can, they can go much farther, uh, than, than they're doing now. I mean, there also seems like there could be some personality barriers. Uh, and again, this is kind of getting to, to the individual level, but do some people are some, is everyone ready to have downstates in, in their lives, fully embrace downstates? I mean, we live in a very fast paced culture and, um, there, uh, a lot of us have just grown up with this idea that we need to be on the go 24 seven. Do some people need to work on themselves a little bit before they're ready to embrace downstates? Like, is there a sense in which some people like maybe type A personalities, uh, might need to do some work, maybe like some counseling before they open themselves up to the recommendations in your book. Yeah, I mean, I actually think type A personalities are like the perfect person to embrace this because they really want to do well. And so they can maybe see um, that this is part of them. Like, you know, you can't like the, the metaphor of the of the ocean wave, it needs to draw in before it can have a crash, right? Before it can crash and have that large sort of, you know, muscular um crashing of the wave, you don't just see crash, 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 crash. There's always, you know, a wave drawing in and then a crash and then a wave drawing in and a crash, right? So any amount of energy expenditure requires a downstate. And I I actually think that like people who are really on top of their game are really working hard or really into fitness or into, you know, self-improvement. Those are the people who this is going to be a no-brainer for. But to me, there's just a lot of, you know, there's a lot of depression. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of um, st- chronic stress. Um, there's a lot of, of of kind of a life where people are um, going 
living life in a reactive state rather than really being sort of the controllers of their own life and self-regulators of their own life. Um, so I think that what, what, you know, pointing, you know, say, saying that actually, yes, there's a huge amount of um, self-improvement that we can all be doing to, um, you know, regulate, you know, to, to, to regulate our lives so that we aren't so reactive to the world, but that we are choosing how we want to react to the world. Um, and that, you know, that we can manage our depression better and we can manage, um, you know, our, our health better through number one, getting good therapy, you know, get finding the ways in which you self-sabotage on a daily basis. Absolutely. And then getting help with mentors and trainers and coaches and classes. Um, so I think that there's, there's so many different ways in which this is a um, kind of a, a group experience that, that we can um, support each other with for sure. Yeah. And I love that. And, and this is maybe another one of those devil's advocate questions, but um, for the for those overachieving type of personalities who, you know, could be opened up to seeing how downstates could help with their productivity, you know, ultimately this could be useful for being productive. There's some really interesting tensions between the goals of peak performance and the goal of long term health and longevity and rest. Yeah. Um, and, and what I mean is, um, so like if, uh, like burnout. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of like, if someone has a, a limited period of time in which to accomplish something personally important to them that requires excruciating work in the near term and say, but it's say that near term is not one day in the, you know, sort of the, um, scale of our circadian rhythm, but rather a month or even a year. And they, then the window of opportunity is going to close. Might they want to skip out on downstates to some extent and spend a disproportionate t amount of time in upstates, at least through that period, and then take like a downstate year <laughs> or a downstate month? Or does it only work on the scale of the circadian daily rhythm? So it's a really good question, right? So it, it's that idea of can I sleep when I'm old? You know, can I just eat healthy on the weekends? Can I sleep on, can I sleep on the weekends and not have to sleep all week? And the... And, and what the research is saying is that the daily wear and tear that happens on, you know, during the upstate on a daily basis is stays with you and that it's really important to recognize how every night of sleep is important or how every exercise is important because it actually gets um, there's a accumulation of the toxins that are accumulating in your brain and in your body um, when you don't have regular downstate periods. So if you were to just, you know, stay, sleep, say five hours a night, four hours a night for a week, you would start to have pre-diabetic levels of insulin um, regulation problems, insulin metabolism problems. You would start to have accumulation of proteins in the brain that can eventually, when you're much, much older, develop into the plaques that um, that are associated with dementia and Alzheimer's. So there's levels of, um, of strain and stress on your body that accumulate when you don't do regular downstates. Not only that, um, when you are depleting your body, say you're saying, you know, I want to do, I want to reach a goal of like running a marathon. <clears throat> um, the, there's a, there's a, the new approach to looking at how to train isn't just going on a system of saying, I'm going to train, you know, hard, easy, hard, easy, hard, or, you know, medium, whatever it is on day to day and having that system be sort of dedicated or, or, or dictated by some sort of objective measure um, or some sort of external measure, there's a, there's a newer training method, which is to say, I'm going to let my body tell me whether I'm ready. Because if you're not ready to go, if you've just had a really long run and the next day you're looking at yourself and saying, well, I was supposed to do a medium run today, um, but I still feel really tired. What you're doing is you're depleting your body um, when it's all when it's still depleted from the day before, and it means that you can be getting yourself um, 
uh, exhausted and mentally exhausted, physically exhausted, but also more prone to injury and illness. Um, so really giving yourself time um, to recover as much as possible um, sets you up for greater success in the long term. And I, and I go into this in much more detail is, is using your own autonomic nervous system to tell you whether you've actually um, been, you know, replenished yourself enough for the next hard run or hard workout. Yeah, I love that part of your book. And I think you, you talk about how you can um, take your resting heart rate before you work out. And if it's uh, a faster heart rate relative to what you usually have, maybe that's a better rest day. And if it's a lower heart rate, then you know that's a, a maybe a day when you can push it better. Do I have that right? That's right. It's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I was telling my dad about that you know, last night. There are, really are uh, many practical recommendations in the book. I really did learn an incredible amount. And um, oh, great! I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I enjoyed it a lot. And um, yeah, I, I, I guess the last thing I'll say about sort of these different chronotypes and, you know, how the book's concepts, you know, dovetail with the goal of productivity. Um, you know, I think of Picasso as someone who, and I know people like this, right. Who just, they're really hard charging. They'll, they'll work straight through the night and, and to them it's worth it. And it, it might take a toll on their health in the long run, but it seems like there's almost a philosophical choice, uh, that people can make, for themselves about, you know, whether, what, what is the best way for them to work and what will make them um, happy in the long run, looking back on their life and what they were able to achieve, but also sort of philosophically about what is going to be the best for productivity. And is there sort of like a longevity of productivity? Like the longer you live, the longer you stay healthy, yeah. the more you can produce, right? So pace yourself <laughs> seems to be like one of the messages in, in your book. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, when you're young and in your 20s, um, that's a really great time to, uh, number one, it's a great time because it's a great time because you're kind of superhuman and you're at your best and you can deal with um, long nights of working or long nights of partying and recover the next day really quickly because your your upstate downstate rhythms are super super strong. But once you start getting into your 30s and 40s, we start to let go of a lot of our downstate practices, um, and they start to actually just become weaker signals. Um, and that is when I think that people really want to start establishing better boundaries around, um, uh, you know. Um, work practices and rest practices, uh, because they will really pay off, um, 30 to 40 years from now. That's, uh, that's my age. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta you're, you're talking to me. Yeah. It's, uh... I know, I know. Yeah, I know. It's great to set, you know, and then, and I think that, you know, if you think about the way our medical system works is there's, we don't do preventative work, you know, like, and, 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 and it shows because we have more chronic diseases than any other culture, right? And people are treated when they get into the emergency room rather than actually not getting into the emergency room because they've been spoken to like this since they were in their 20s and 30s to say, you're going to start, you're going to need to set up some good rhythms and some, you know, you're going to need to start honoring your rest periods and, um, and, and, and adapting and, and, and restricting the pleasure or restricting the overwork so that you can be more um, balanced, right? That happens in places like Japan, right? Where they actually have extremely uh, good healthcare because so much of it is preventative and they have very long lives and, you know, very productive. And yeah. Well, those are some important lessons for our culture to learn. It seems like in terms of our lifestyle in this country, we have some important changes to make and then the medical the care system being preventive is certainly an important change that needs to be made um you have uh, just a really wide range of recommendations uh including light exposure there's a, a fascinating part of your book that uh, is all about how to get light at the right times of day and you know i encourage people to to read the book for for that section too 
I, I have a question about light exposure that I wanted to just briefly ask you that it seems like it's like one of these questions that's not Googleable. Like I, I, I wear glasses in uh, throughout the day. It, if you're wearing glasses, are you, does that get in the way of your light exposure? For some reason, I haven't been able to find a good answer to that question. Um, that's interesting. I think that I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I think that there's, now we have so many lights that are made for computers, right? So that they are, they try to decrease the amount of blue light exposure so that you don't get eye strain and exhaustion. Um, so the question is whether when you're wearing those, do they also decrease the amount of ambient light getting into your eyes that tell you what time of day it is? Um, right. Like if I'm wearing glasses early morning and I'm trying to get my 30 minutes of sunlight in the morning to tell my body that it's time to wake up. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, my my guess would be that uh, the ambient light is getting, you know, it's not like you have uh, a lens over your eyeball that is preventing you from getting light on the side or the top or, you know, underneath. So my guess is that if you're exposed to bright sunlight, that the light is coming in on the side and on the top and, you know, maybe underneath it that is getting you the right signals. Um, but I don't know of any actual research that looks at whether um, people wearing prescription lenses have different um, light exposure. Yeah, well... To, to natural light. It's a good question. I mean, it's, you know, it's... I, I can solve the problem. I can take off my glasses. You can take uh, off your glasses. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not the... However... If there's a nice sun, sunrise, sometimes I like to see it in detail. So, yeah. uh, again, not the biggest uh, problem that the world faces. Well, I do think the ambience, I mean, light, sunlight is beyond, you know, is, is really hard to get. You, know, you can't block it out by just having these two little lenses that are sort of an inch away from your eyeball. So my guess is that you're still getting enough of the light signal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> it's a good I will, question. Though. I will watch the sunrise in yeah, detail. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sarah, uh, we're getting to the end of uh, the hour, and uh, really have enjoyed the the conversation with you. Thanks again for for writing such a such a, a helpful book. And um, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Likewise. Are there any other plugs you'd like to give for the book uh, or your work in general? Well, I mean, people can follow me on Twitter, Sarah underscore Mednick, and I have a website, sarahmednick.com, and, and I post a lot of, you know, I write a lot of different essays and try to get a lot of different thoughts and opinions out there, so people can always follow me that way. Excellent. Yeah, I think a lot of people are going to uh, enjoy it, make a positive difference in a lot of people's lives, and it'll enable them to feel better on a more regular basis and live the life that they want to have. So I encourage people to read it and I really appreciate your time, Sarah. And uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Making Sense of Science podcast. If you like the show and you want to hear more from the best thinkers of our time to help make sense of the latest health innovations and their impact on our rapidly changing world, please hit the follow button. And in the meantime, please visit our online magazine at leaps.org, where you can read in-depth articles examining health breakthroughs through the lens of rational optimism. Enjoy the leaps.org platform, and I hope you take care. Until next time.